Welcome everyone to our BJJ podcast for the month of March. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. As always, we'd like to thank our readers and listeners for the comments and support we receive, as well as to our many authors and guest interviewers who have taken part so far. Over this year, we hope to continue to build on the range of topics we've covered through our series so far, with our continuing aim to improve the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish for both you as our readers and listeners, as well as for our many authors. For this month's study, as you know, over the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we will cover a range of aspects for the chosen work, emphasizing the important points of how the study has been designed, as well as the key findings from the data and how these potentially fit into each of your day-to-day -day clinical practices. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the authors have developed the study and give them an opportunity to put forward the key findings of their work. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Paul Jenkins from Glasgow Royal Infirmary to discuss their study entitled The Changing Instance of Arthroscopic Subacromial Decompression in Scotland, which has been published in the March edition of the BJJ. Welcome, Paul, and a big thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much, Andrew, for the invite to take part in this podcast. So, Paul, if the aim of your study was to examine the recent trends in delivery of arthroscopic subacromial decompression in Scotland and to determine if this varies by geographical location throughout the country. So can you give us a brief introduction to the paper and some background to the recent studies highlighting the chronic tendinopathic model of dysfunction for subacromial pain? So I think, as you say, this paper was uh, rooted very much in the emerging concepts of the pathogenesis of tendinopathy, uh, affecting the, you know, the whole broad spectrum of tendinopathy throughout the, the body. Um, uh, in the initial sort of evolution of tendinopathy, um, it was sort of first described really around the shoulder by Codman in the 1930s as a result of intrinsic degeneration in, uh, inside the, the tendon. And it was really only uh, later on that uh, Neer described the extrinsic model uh, and coining the term impingement with impingement of structures such as the um, uh, sort of hooked aspect of the acromion and the CA ligament leading to uh, rubbing and damage. And it was these uh, concepts that then led to the surgical uh, management by taking them away first with open procedures and then with the advent of arthroscopy. And the advent of arthroscopy was very seductive in that you could take a procedure which was uh, associated with reasonable morbidity in terms of its open setting and undertake it with a very uh, small incision and a much lower uh, morbidity associated with that. Um, on the back of that, we definitely saw a, a really rapid expansion in the adoption of subacromial decompression as a technique, and that was described by Professor Carr and his group in a paper in the Bone and Joint Journal in 2014, which described the temporal trends and geographical variations in England over a period of 2001 to 2010. And they reported a sevenfold increase from 5.2 per 100,000 to uh, just over 40 per 100. Thousand. Following on from that, there were two really quite influential large uh, prospective pragmatic uh, multi-centre randomised controlled trials. The first was UK-based, which was the Seesaw study, Can Shoulder Arthroscopy Work, undertaken again by uh, Professor Carr's group as the chief investigator and published in The Lancet in 2018, but had been published online uh, uh, the, the previous year. And similarly, there was a study from Finland, from uh, Pavola, Pavola et al. in the BMJ, which uh, looked with quite a similar study design. 
The CSOS study randomised patients into three groups. The first was uh, no intervention at all, and then there were two surgical groups. The first surgical group was shoulder arthroscopy alone, which was uh, designed as a placebo intervention group, although I think we have to remember that in that group, patients did undergo a diagnostic arthroscopy, and both the joint and the bursa were instrumented and uh, had saline insufflation and I, I think as many of the listeners would agree it can often be very difficult to see at all in the bursa without removal of at least a little bit of uh, the bursa and therefore you know, possibly a partial bursectomy and these are points which uh, can be discussed in terms of the, how we interpret the results. The CSOS study showed that both diagnostic arthroscopy alone and the actual full subacromial decompression with the removal of these uh, hypothetical com uh, extrinsic compression structures were, were both superior to no intervention in terms of the study endpoints of the, the Oxford shoulder score, but that there was uh, really uh, equivalence between them in terms of their, their efficacy. And the conclusion was, was that the placebo surgery group was as effective as the, um, the actual surgery group. The, the FIMPAC study was slightly different in that patients were initially uh, randomized to either um, physiotherapy or surgery. And then within the surgery group, they were randomized a second time into the sort of placebo diagnostic arthroscopy group or the arthroscopic subacromial decompression group. Um, the, both these studies, uh, really started to uh, be widely discussed amongst the shoulder community and that uh, and along with the, the evolving concepts of the pathogenesis of tendinopathy as being not a purely extrinsic uh, issue led us led the shoulder community to start to uh, really think about the indications again for subacromial decompression and where it was used um, and we wanted to look at a national database to see was there an improvement in or was there a change in the um, provision of this procedure around the time that these studies started to be published. That's a, a great overview, Paul. I think just it sort of brings together sort of the background to an SAD and also the recent studies. And I think, like you say, your work's very timely in determining, certainly in Scotland, how the literature has influenced that. So if we Move on to how you, you performed the study. You analysed national temporal trends in procedures utilising the National uh, Scottish Mobility Records, or SMR, uh, for the period between March 2014 to April 2018. So for our, our listeners, Paul, some who won't be familiar with the SMR, um, what does that database normally collect and sort of how robust or how accurate is it? Well, this database has been run for a, a long time, stretching back to the early 1980s. And run centrally by the NHS Scotland uh, Information and Statistics Division and every episode within Scottish hospitals either in a, the day case or an inpatient generates an SMR01 code and SMR stands for the Scottish Morbidity Record and this is very similar to the English HES type data. The data is generated by uh, hospital coders who at the end of an episode will look through the uh, immediate and final discharge letters along with the operation notes and any other information in the patient's notes to make a code 
uh, about the underlying diagnosis with the ICD-10 and the procedure undertaken with the OPCS code. It's a very uh, useful data set and in other settings because of the use of the community health index number, which is unique to every patient. Uh, we can also look at sort of linkage studies and look at linkage to other uh, national uh, databases. But this was a, a relatively simple and straightforward um, uh, query we uh, asked of the database, just looking at uh, one sort of set of procedures over a period of time. In terms of its accuracy, there have been studies about the accuracy and it has been reported as being in the region of 90 to 94% when it has been validated. With any of these sort of databases, however, we have to accept that there will be a degree of uh, miscoding. And that was one of the reasons in terms of the, the time periods we chose because earlier versions of the OPCS coding system had been uh, less, there was less clarity about the coding of subacromial decompression, whereas from uh, 2014 onwards, there were specific codes relating to that as a procedure. And that was also, a, again, one of the reasons we uh, didn't look at sort of longer term trends prior to that. Just uh, we felt that it would be introducing some more uh, a potential for um, sort of variation that we couldn't take account of. Um, also, in, in terms of the, if there were going to be some errors in, in coding, which we would accept, we, we have assumed that they would be consistent during the period of time. And so we're, we're looking at this in terms of internal consistency, and we would have some uh, slight more cautions when extrapolating it to other work. Although it is interesting to note that the instance of subacromial decompression at the start of ours uh, was uh, in the same region uh, as uh, 40 per 100,000, as had been described at the end of Professor Carr's study in England in 2014. So I think that actually is uh, quite a, a nice uh, way of linking those two studies and looking towards the v uh, validity of both these data sets. No, I totally agree, Paul. I think that's right. And I think the actress of it is, is quite clear there. And like you say, with using big data like this, there may be some inconsistencies there, but they're likely going to cancel themselves out over time. And I think... Um, before we move on to the results, though, just, just for our listeners, <clears throat> what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria you had for the study in particular? So we, we looked at, um, in general, we looked at patients who had the specific codes of arthroscopic subacromial decompression, and then we were looking at those who had had um, uh, an arthroscopic uh, uh, AC joint excision alongside that. We excluded any uh, open forms of AC joint excision um, because uh, one suggested hypothesis was that as the uh, ability or the um, subacromial decompression became a sort of less common procedure, surgeons may look to treat other pathology of uh, questionable symptomatology. You know, in some cases, the AC joint is very much symptomatic, but in other cases, there may be radiological changes, but it's not providing sort of symptomatic cause. So we, we wanted to look at this as a, as a balancing measure to see you know, what was the rate of other arthroscopic shoulder uh, procedures changing over that same time period. No, absolutely. And I, I, I think that's very clear in terms of, I think the exclusion criteria, like I say, just uh, add to the validity of the, the way you've performed the study. I think that's, that's very clear. So in terms of, if we move over to, over to the, onto the results, shall we say, um, 
So what were the key findings? You sort of alluded to what it was like at the start, but what, did you, what would you feel the key findings are in, of your study in relation to the number of ASDs performed over the study period and, and how that changed? I think the key finding was that the, the rate fell by approximately 35% and that the majority of this fall was seen in the year uh, 2018. Um, these were financial years. Um, so that would actually be from... Uh, April 2017 to um, to March 2018, um, that fall fell from uh, 41.6 per hundred thousand to 28.9 per hundred thousand. That again validates our uh, hypothesis that some of this fall was uh, due to the the ongoing work around tendinopathy in these uh, multicenter randomised control trials. Now, one issue that was brought up during the the review process was in terms of the, the timing of the publication of the RCTs versus what we have observed uh, as this fall. Um, the, although we have the, the dates of publication of these RCTs as, as 2018, they were being discussed and in some cases were discussed in the, the wider media and in uh, papers such as The Guardian uh, well before that. And quite a lot of surgeons who had been involved in the in the process and to actually randomised patients, we're starting to get a feel for the, the fact that uh, there may well be sort of limitations of the subacromial decompression. So the, the feeling was that uh, even prior to the publication of the results, there, there was a, an increasing awareness in the shoulder community of the, the, the possible outcomes of the study. And I think actually there was an anticipation in practice did start to change um, in, in the year before that. Well, I think that's right, Paul. And I mean, certainly that was similar for, as we all know, for the for the draft study that looked at wrist fractures, the the change that started to occur before the, the, the study was published. But for those very reasons you just described, you often get that change happening a, a little bit before the actual official publication date for those reasons. So um, we've talked about the, the reduction, but in terms of the geographical variations across Scotland, did you see anything when you looked at that, Paul? It, this again was very interesting and it did actually again um, back up some of the work that had been done by Prof Carr in the 2014 paper where we saw quite significant variation between boards throughout the country. Um, in the year 2017 to 2018 of the 14 boards in Scotland, there were four where the rate of subacromial decompression was over three standard deviations from national average and there were two where the, the rate was below that national average. When we look at the sort of numbers involved, some of this could be down to the, um, the practice of perhaps one or two different surgeons or, or a unit. And in terms of the actual um, criteria that people use to decide whether to recommend uh, to a patient whether to undertake subacromial decompression or not, um, the, 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 there can be variation in terms of the amount of time the number of steroid injections, the amount of uh, physiotherapy that should be undertaken prior to that. Um, we would plan to use this sort of data separately to feedback to the individual uh, board areas and um, is a, an area of interest for future research to see whether these outlying areas do come within a, a, a more um, sort of national average and within the within the funnel plot once once that is fed back. Obviously there are also areas of um, good practice uh, on show here um, but 
you also have to balance that in terms of uh, when a, a rate is very low, is there actually restriction in terms of an effective procedure? And I think in all of our discussion, we have to realise that there still is a role for this uh, procedure and that uh, the, the danger of some of these studies and some of this work can be for a very binary approach to the problem where uh, we say this operation doesn't work, it, it shouldn't be offered. And even when we look back at the Seesaw study, there was a, approximately 25% of the, the non-operative group who crossed over into an operative intervention over the this, this study time period. So I, I think we do need a more nuanced approach and uh, to recommend that it is still there possibly but I, I, as, as, a, as a procedure that may be beneficial but when conservative measures are exhausted after a reasonable amount of time. No, I completely agree, Paul. I think that's I think that's the key for many of these trials is that it, we, we sort of uh, want a binary outcome and a one-size-fits-all sort of answer to it but often uh, I don't think it, I think you're right I don't think you can do that I think it's for more generalizability and also I think in this case as you say it's sort of saying that this is a procedure we're probably probably overdoing um, but there are a small number of patients who will still benefit from this um, once they fit certain criteria. So if it, that sort of moves on nicely Paul. If you had to summarise what do you feel the key findings of the work are and I suppose you've already you've already discussed it briefly but sort of with any caveats with any limitations of the data? I think if we, if we start with the, the caveats this looks at um, uh, sort of large national level data, there is a potential for the data being um, uh, slightly erroneous or incomplete, although we are sort of reassured by the published uh, validity or validation studies of, of the data sets being in the region of the, the 90%. And we're relatively comfortable that the trends over time will be valid in terms of uh, any errors will be consistent over time because there hasn't been any significant changes to the coding during this time period or the, the overall methodology. What we don't have access to is um, the number of these procedures that are undertaken in the private sector. Um, we would actually see that's one of the potential benefits of undertaking this study in Scotland. Um, in Scotland, the private sector is uh, really makes up quite a, a low proportion of the overall um, orthopaedic procedures done within the, the country on an annual basis. And um, I, I think it, it, it makes it uh, probably more uh, applicable or comparable to the, the, the national population, although we, it would be of interest what, what is happening in, in, other, in other sectors. Absolutely. In terms of, uh, Paul, we've already discussed it uh, a little bit, but you know, you, you mentioned the greatest decline was seen 2017 to 2018. We, we think that's potentially related to the literature and sort of the lag time with publication. We've talked about that. Um, what, what, do you, what do you feel the explanations are in terms of the, the variations you saw across Scotland? Do you think, are those variations seen elsewhere in another parts of the literature? And do you have any sort of explanations for that in particular? I think we see this sort of variation really throughout the literature and when we look at things like the, um, the English Atlas of Variation or the NHS Scotland Atlas of Variation, we, we see such um, unexplained variation in the uh, provision of a variety of procedures and other forms of healthcare, um, you know, from uh, arthroplasty to cataract surgery and 
understanding this variation is probably key to um, trying to uh, improve the provision of healthcare really throughout systems as large as the, the National Health Service and uh, trying to filter down the recommendations and getting evidence-based medicine into practice is uh, is the challenge in that there are a lot of studies coming out like this and uh, trying to get them down to the uh, the actual people who are undertaking the procedures and into effect change is uh, probably one of the most challenging aspects of uh, our sort of practice and evidence-based medicine now going forward. Well, I totally agree, Paul. I think and sort of when you talk about going forward, you know, with relating to your study, how 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 do you feel that the, the data of these types of studies that sort of reflect on what what our practices are on a national level? How how do you best move them forward? How can you utilize them to sort of influence our day to day individual practices? I, I think as you know, as static pieces of work, these are these are interesting, but I think um, there there needs to be ongoing audit and review and feedback to surgical teams, you know, whether it is through, um, so we, we have access to uh, sort of national tools in, such as the National Joint Registry or the Scottish Arthroplasty Project when it comes to arthroplasty. I think we need to have extension of these projects to um, uh, cover non-arthroplasty surgery because actually there is uh, probably the, the majority of procedures undertaken in, in orthopedics are actually not arthroplasty related and I think focus needs to come to them so that we can look at where variation exists to try and understand that and reduce it. No, I totally agree, Paul. I think that's exactly right. Um, so, well, Paul, I think, I think that's all we have time for, actually. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and congratulations on, a, on an excellent study that I think is without doubt an invaluable addition to the literature in this area. And uh, again, thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks again for the invite. It was a pleasure to join you. And to our listeners, uh, we do hope you've enjoyed uh, joining us today and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook and alike. Feel free to post or tweet about anything we have discussed here today and thanks again for joining us.